Where am I? Where's Reznov? You will answer our questions. Do you understand? Who the hell are you? That's not important. What's important is who you are. What's your name? Fuck you! On November 9th, 2010, Treyarch and Activision released a game called Call of Duty Black Ops. It's a war game, set in the 1960s during the Cold War. The story is complex. It involves Russian spies, the failed assassination of Fidel Castro, the successful assassination of JFK. It was a major production. They even cast some famous actors to voice characters in the game. Sam Worthington, Ice Cube, Ed Harris, even Gary Oldman. But the most impressive thing about it was its success. Only one month after it was released, one month, Call of Duty Black Ops had been played for 68,000 years. You heard that right. 68,000 years. To give some perspective, 68,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were migrating out of Africa. I'm Brian Fabry Dorsum, and this is Character Creator. This month, Patriot Games. When we think of war games, we often think about the popular, gritty, first-person shooters like Call of Duty. But war and video games go back a long way. In this episode, we'll take a look at the complex relationship between war and games to get a better picture of the world of wargaming beyond Call of Duty. This episode will be divided into three acts, but I'm going to call them levels because this is a video game podcast and levels is cuter. Level 1. Beyond Imagination. Two days after my birthday, I was on route Tampa with a with a mounted escort uh, heading north on Tampa, which Tampa, for those of you who don't abla, is the uh, is the major uh, road route around the outside of Baghdad. It's like this a- is Stephen Machuga. In 2003, he was in the infantry of the United States Army in Iraq, and a vehicle came across a little gulf, like think about a gulf, uh, hopped. The median, it wasn't armored, it wasn't anything. It literally just hopped the median and uh, tried to detonate itself against the side of one of our vehicles. Uh, it, it did detonate, but it was not nearly the impact it should have had because the guy was obviously not supposed to be a suicide bomber. He was just a wannabe suicide bomber. Steve and the rest of the guys in the truck, they got lucky. So it was very poorly done, but the explosions blew out all the run flat you know, tires on the side of one of the vehicle, like two vehicles up from where I was at. But while he didn't sustain any serious physical injuries, the psychological impact stayed with him for a long time. At the time, PTSD was not a thing. Like, it was not, everybody knows what PTSD is now. But when I was in, it was not a thing. Like, nobody knew what that was. Like, nothing was making me happy, and I could not figure out what was wrong with me. And I was back home, and I was sitting in the parking lot of an off, off-site medical center um i was sitting there in the parking lot in tears because i could not go into that facility and risk somebody finding out that i was going to try to get some help because i don't know how it is now but the military is very much like 
it, it rewards strength and bravery and honor. And if you go in there and say, hey, I am having nightmares and, you know, night sweats and terrors and I can't sleep and I'm unhappy and, you know, they see that as a weakness. And so that would go on your record. As an officer, you cannot show weakness to your men. Like, what? how are you supposed to lead men into battle if you're going to, you know, curl up in the corner and cry? So that would have been, like, if anybody, that's why I was off post. And I, even then, it was like, somebody's going to find out about this and it's going to ruin my career. But Steve found some solace in an unexpected place. I was forced to deal with it in, <laughs> through uh, World of Warcraft which was my escapism. World of Warcraft is a massive multiplayer online role-playing game in which gamers create an avatar and interact with each other online in a massive fantasy world with dragons and elves and monsters. It's incredibly popular. But for Steve, it was also healing. I would play World of Warcraft for just hours upon hours upon hours. And while I was doing that, it helped me forget about what was going on in my life and helped me forget about the, you know, being tired and exhausted and unhappy. And I wasn't, it, I was all about running quests and getting raid ready and, you know, making sure my, my team, my uh, raid guild was happy. And, and it, it provided me something to take my mind off things. But World of Warcraft wasn't just a distraction. It was a way to utilize some of the skills he'd learned in the army in a safe environment. It was communications. It was leadership. It was being able to communicate effectively, you know, across <laughs> sometimes warring internal factions and, you know, guild politics. And there's a lot of that. I mean, there's, it's crazy to say that. But, yes, there's a lot of skills that you pick up in the military and are able to translate over into video games pretty effectively. It's not necessarily that typical PTSD treatment is not effective. You know, you have to set up an appointment and you wait a couple days and, you know, that, that's great and fine. But PTSD and issues like that don't wait for a, a psychiatrist's call. So, you know, if you're having trouble at two in the morning, you can flip on, you know, some destiny and grind out for a little bit and that helps get you through that little little period until you can get, you know, the help you need. To get a better understanding of what PTSD can look like, I spoke with a couple other combat vets about their experience. I, re I remember during 9-11, uh, moments after it happened, uh, Air Force One flew over my backyard and off at Air Force Base. This is Tim Locklear. And then I looked on CNN and saw the very same plane. Tim realized then that this war was going to be real and he might have a part to play. So a few years later, he joined up. I ended up joining in uh, 2007 and uh, joined as an infantryman, which basically meant that I was going to kick in doors and put people in handcuffs and, uh, you know, get shot at and blown up and what have you. And I was stoked to do it. I was excited. I, I wanted to go to war to, um, to do what I thought was going to make me a badass, and ultimately it made me hurt. <laughs> Tim got sent back to the United States to get treatment for his injuries. And from there, basically it was drugs. Uh, it was uh, the VA, or at the, at the time I was active duty, so the TRICARE doctor was my drug dealer. Um, I was on copious amounts of pharmaceuticals, um, and I was selling them to use illicit or illegal drugs. I was abusing the, the drugs that were legally prescribed to me. I was just basically trying to escape my mind as much as I could. I treated my wife terribly, I acted horribly, I was just a terrible person. When Bryant Chambers came back from Iraq, it wasn't him who first noticed the changes in his personality. So for me it wasn't, it was something where someone just kind of tipped me off. My mom was like, hey, just look into it because 
you know, you're not the same person that I remember when you left here, which was absolutely true. It's war does fundamentally shift some of your behaviors because when you go through an experience like that, it doesn't necessarily change the core of who you are, but it gives you kind of a human impatience with what, what at least for, for this veteran, what I consider to be some of the silliness of the world. When you're trying to reconcile coming out of an environment where literally every decision I make could determine whether or not me or one of the people I care very deeply for lives or dies, and then coming to an environment where your decisions don't have that same weight, but other, other people around you may be asking you to apply the same level of rigor and the same level of care to something that's just very hard for you to do. I think of like Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon and then coming home to work at Target. Like, what? Ugh. So my mother noticed that there was kind of an imbalance because me experiencing that in the real world made me very impatient and very angry. Many combat veterans with PTSD find comfort in video games, but Tim and Bryant found it in what was, to me, a surprising place. They found it in war games. I started to try to find ways to adjust, and one of the things I remembered from when I was deployed was playing Xbox and how fun that was. And so that's what I started doing back here was playing games with friends. And it got to where it was like, this is really actually relaxing, and I'm actually able to find a lot of camaraderie in hanging out with these people and typically consuming atrocious amounts of terrible foods and playing copious amounts of unhealthy video games. And ultimately, found, we found out that they weren't as unhealthy as we thought. They actually helped us cope. Here's Brian. I am reliving the, the exciting part of combat that I think if most vets really dug down in the core of their soul, they would think, yeah, that actually was one of the most exciting, exhilarating moments of my life. I can take myself in a safe way, in a safe place, back to what it feels like to smell blood and gun smoke, and then hit the X button and get back out of it if I want to. <laughs> As part of my research for this episode, I played Call of Duty Modern Warfare Remastered. It came out last year and was a spiffed up re-release of a game that came out in 2006. It was the first Call of Duty game to take place in the present day. It was at the height of Bush's War on Terror, and the game took advantage of that. Your enemies were vaguely Muslim, vaguely Middle Eastern terrorists. Your job was basically to stomp around the Middle East killing as many terrorists as you could while in pursuit of the group's leader who is rumored to be in possession of a nuclear bomb. The game is very intense. Just listen to it for a minute. After a couple hours of playing, I was surprised to find that I felt ill. I couldn't tell if it was motion sickness from the rapid camera movement, or if it was because my body had been in a state of high tension for two hours straight. I paused the game and laid down on my couch. How could this be relaxing for anyone, especially combat veterans? Bryant had been telling me about a mission in the video game Battlefield that he had really fond memories of. I asked him if it brought him back to his time in Iraq. No, <laughs> nice. The, the mission was way too unrealistic and ridiculous <laughs> to take me back to, like, just the the, the scenarios it puts you in are too, like, I can suspend my disbelief sometimes with video games, 
that particular mission, I'm like, there's no way two of us are running through all these buildings, and nobody's going to figure out that we just murdered all 90 of these other guys before we got to the HVT. So, and I think that's going back to what we were talking about before with just the the reason why a vet just doesn't have the same emotional reaction is, like, because we can look at a video game and immediately pick apart, like, this is... Like, we can suspend our disbelief for the sake of fun, but we know, like, in the back of our minds, this is completely ridiculous. No one would ever even be in this situation because it's completely not tactical uh, or just borderline stupid. Tim calls games like this Super Mario Brothers with guns. But just because games like this aren't realistic doesn't mean that they're not fun. And it doesn't mean that Tim and Brian aren't invested in them. So there's that, there's a certain point where it's like, yeah, that's not real life, but... I want to get to level 40, so I'm going to figure out how to do that. And you might think that guys like Tim and Bryant, who have real-life experience in war, would be really good at these games, but that's not always the case. I remember playing, I think it was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, where you play in Brazil with a giant statue, and I kept getting killed trying to clear these buildings, and my cousin, who at the time was about 16, was watching me play, said, what are you doing? It's like, I'm trying to survive. It's like, the streets are filled with all these people. He's like, but why are you hiding in the buildings? I said, because they're shooting. He's like, yeah, you'll get shot, but not enough times to die. You just have to run. And in my brain, I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, just run. The, the game wants you to run away from this fight. I'm like, but I'll, I'll get shot. He's like, yeah, yeah, but you won't die. You know, it showed kind of a design. I almost say it's a flaw because it's a game, but it's, that disparity between a soldier, how I would react in that situation compared to the way a video game player who doesn't have my conditioning and doesn't have my sense of, I probably shouldn't do it this way. In fact, on one of my live streams back when I was still doing games on my uh, first channel, the guy was watching me play Call of Duty, and he was also a military guy, and he used the term, hey, dude, are you checking corners? Which means, you know, when you come into a building and you clear it properly, there's a way to do it. And I actually busted out laughing on the stream. I was like, yeah, he's like, dude, this is Call of Duty. Cut it out. Like, just run through the building. So it turns out that when playing games like Call of Duty or Battlefield, Tim and Brian's military training can actually work against them. I think war is actually easier than this game. Like, this game requires me to use every button on my keyboard. Like, I could really just pick up a rifle and jump into this scenario and have an easier time than I'm having playing this stupid game. So for someone like me, who's never even been in a fist fight, let alone a war, Call of Duty would be stressful. But for people who've actually been there, it makes sense that it would be relaxing. It's light years away from actual war. And that's not to say that this is always the case. Many combat veterans stay away from games like Call of Duty for exactly the reasons you might expect. Even for Tim and Brian, there was a long period where they couldn't play them either. But eventually, over time, that changed. I played it and played it, and then I, I, I got into survival mode, and it was really fun. And all of a sudden, I started to find a lot of therapy. The more I listened to Tim talk about Call of Duty, the more it started to sound like what he thought the army would be when he signed up. So I asked him if Call of Duty was actually more like what he wanted when he enlisted. That's that's yes, yes, that's that's exactly it. And and in fact, more than I mean, maybe more than you are aware, because like, I it, it, war was nothing like that. You know, there was there's there's very little truly about Call of Duty Modern Warfare Three that's really much like war at all, outside of the fact that it's dudes with guns wearing 
camo. That's that's really about the only realistic thing. I mean, almost everything about it is unrealistic, but at the same time, it's incredibly realistic. So it walks this line, this duality. Everyone I talked to said something like this. War is not what you think. Everything you think is going to be hard is actually the easy part. All the crap you think is going to be easy is the part that sucks, and I'll explain. This is Brian again. Getting shot at and running and having to do your thing, really isn't that hard in the moment because, one, you're trained to do it. Two, as long as you don't get hurt or killed, there's some excitement there. And, and three, we're, we are the best trained guys and ladies at freaking doing this. So when you're in the heat of the moment, you're, you're reacting based on your training. And so what you find is hard is the downtime. It's the freaking sitting around wondering, all right, when are we going into our next fight? Jesus, I hope my wife's okay. Oh, man, somebody, so-and-so's mom just passed away. It's like it's the time where you're just sitting there waiting for a fight to get into. That's It just it melts your brain. I found out that what a lot of soldiers do to ease their mind in these moments is play video games. Here's Steve Machuga from earlier. There's a picture of me getting, we are getting ready to to ship out to the airport to go to Iraq, to go to the airfield. Uh, and you can very clearly see a weird-shaped square in one of my pockets, and I know exactly what that That was where I was keeping my uh, Nintendo DS. So anytime we come to a halt or anytime we like we were we had downtime, I would pull that out and I would be playing Final Fantasy Tactics. Tim and Bryant both talk about this too. A lot of the positive memories that they have of war are actually of playing video games with their friends. So Steve noticed the positive effect that gaming was having, not just on him, but on many of the other soldiers he was fighting with. So when he came home, he did something about it. He created a charity called Stack Up, which sends video games and consoles, not just to veterans back home, but to deployed troops as well. I want to share joy and escapism with other brothers and sisters in arms uh, as best I can. Because civilians back home, uh, they like sending things over, but it's usually very tone deaf. Uh, The the story I tell is when we were, again, when I was over in Iraq, uh, our infantry company uh, got a crate of used Harlequin romance novels from a library that was just trying to unload some some gear, I guess. I don't know what the story was. I, I, I will never understand why they did that. They decided that was a good idea, and they sent it over to us, and we uh, ended up using them on the confiscated arms range for target practice, Uh, but it was right then and kind of there where I realized, you know, hey, uh, (laughs) civilians want to help back home, but they don't always know what to do. Stack Up has been sending games all over the world. I actually just sent out a bunch of boxes yesterday, and of the seven of the boxes we sent out, five of them were stateside. One was one was to Gitmo and one was to Afghanistan. You know, there's like 50 different gaming charities that take care of kids. Nobody was taking care of the veterans, and that was obviously something that I felt needed to be addressed, and that's why I started uh, Stack Up. The use of virtual worlds to treat PTSD isn't limited to the couch or the base, however. It also happens in the hospital. I spoke with Skip Rizzo, a psychologist at USC Davis and the director of medical virtual reality at the Institute for Creative Technologies. Skip treats PTSD with VR. 
Talking with Skip, I realized that for all the conversations I'd had about PTSD, I wasn't sure I fully understood exactly what it was and what it looked like. So I asked him. PTSD uh, traditionally in the past has been viewed as an anxiety disorder, but in the most recent um, diagnostic and statistical manual, it's become sort of its own category of a stress response. And what the criteria for it involve either being exposed directly or seeing someone else exposed directly to significant threat of loss of life, injury, sexual assault, some some type of significant trauma. And so whether you experience it or you see it happen to someone else, or even if you hear about it um, with a loved one and you hear the story or, you know, even some of the things like, say, with the Las Vegas um, shooting, seeing repeatedly, uh, you know, some of that footage can have an impact on people. And the typical, uh, the four core symptoms that you see with this are, number one, hypervigilance or hyperarousal. You know, people have a quick startle response or reflex, and, you know, if you come up behind them, they'll jump out of their skin. Um, so, you know, in some sense, you're seeing there the new nervous system sort of being tuned to be vigilant for threat. The second major symptom is avoidance. People in this state tend to avoid things that remind them of what they went through or places that bring up uh, these events, trigger stimuli, if you will, uh, uncontrolled exposures to events. They try to avoid at all costs. So, you know, maybe you see this with a veteran coming back uh, after war and where bridge overpasses were, you know, places of great threat. Well, maybe now driving down the 405 freeway, uh, you know, going under an overpass is a threatening environment. Maybe people try to avoid it or they're extremely vigilant as they're doing it. Other symptoms are, you know, the nightmares or flashbacks. And then finally, uh, what used to be simply called emotional numbing now has been expanded to cognitive and affective alterations so that your emotional responses to things and maybe your cognitive interpretations of them have changed dramatically. But because PTSD is so complex and can have so many different effects, diagnosing it can be complicated. There has to be a time period where these symptoms continue, uh, where they don't change. Um, you know, if we tested people for these criteria right after a traumatic event, everybody would be labeled with PTSD. Um, and so that, that's not the case. I mean, a lot of the symptoms of PTSD are, are really the normal responses to a traumatic event or an extreme threat. So, you know, you don't want to pathologize what, you know, is a normal reaction to these things. Uh, you know, it's usually after three months if these things continue on that people um, will acquire the diagnosis of PTSD. You know, think of, the, think of something bad that happened to you. And think about how bad you felt right after it happened and how you felt the next day and how you felt a week later. You still feel bad. Maybe a month later you're still feeling bad. But eventually, even though you still have that bad memory of the event and maybe regret or other things, you know, you move forward. You move on. You're not constantly avoiding things that remind you of the event. Or if you think about it, you you don't, you know, automatically, you know, grab a bottle or light a joint or something to try to knock yourself out from thinking about it. Um, and, and that's what PTSD is. People feel as bad about what they went through six months, a year, years down the road as they did that day, sometimes even worse. 
Um, you know, and hypervigilance, I think, is a big thing. Um, you know, and, and again, that's something that in a combat environment, being a hyper-aroused or hypervigilant, that might have kept you alive. You know, that was a good thing in that environment. But when you come back to civilian life and you don't have to worry about IEDs typically uh, around the side of the road or in buildings when you walk in a doorway or that if you have your back to a door in a busy restaurant that you're under, you know, some kind of a vulnerable threat condition, um, you know, those things are not functional behaviors for moving forward in, in civilian everyday life. Skip treats PTSD with something called exposure therapy. Just giving medications to calm the person down, that, you know, in some sense, it might serve to quell the symptoms immediately, but it doesn't, um, doesn't address the, the trauma. And so you take away the meds and, you know, you're still back at square one. But exposure therapy relies on a conversation between the client and the psychologist, which can sometimes be difficult. You know, since avoidance is one of the cardinal symptoms of PTSD, it's a pretty tall order to ask someone to really emotionally engage in memory with things that they've had so much practice trying to avoid thinking about. You know, a lot of times these folks come back for more, they don't want to talk about this stuff. They don't want to sound weak. They don't want to burden their family or their friends with this stuff. You know, the traditional method, people close their eyes and and uh, therapists encourage them to tell their story of a traumatic event that they went through in combat and uh, to do it repeatedly as if it's happening right then and there in the office. And that's where Skip comes in. By helping a person not to avoid these things, but to confront them and process them in a safe environment, that those signals lose their potency as threat. What we do in VR is simply put people in simulations that are reminiscent of what they went through and help them to raise their anxiety in those simulations as they're narrating their story with the clinician controlling in real time the um, exposure or the events in the in the simulation, you know, the clinician can put you in a Humvee or an MRAP or on a foot patrol with a squad, um, can adjust the time of day, the sound effects in the background, the provocative events that may happen around, whether it's a helicopter flying over or an insurgent popping up behind a, a rock somewhere or an explosion blowing up anywhere around you at varying distances. Uh, Clinician has real-time control of all the stimuli, and so with VR, we feel we can put people in these environments and we can consistently titrate or adjust the amount of exposure the person is going through. And even though it's not an exact replica of what they went through, it's close enough to activate those emotions. Hearing all of this, I figured that the graphics in the simulation must be incredibly important. In order to recreate a memory and make the client feel like they're really there, you'd have to get everything right down to the final detail. And in some ways, that is true. When we built the first, uh, the, the actual first clinical version, we modeled the interior of a Humvee from a photograph of the interior of a Humvee. You know, so we have a photograph of what the interior looked like and we modeled it. The first patient to go through it, we say, okay, we want you to, uh, you're sitting in a Humvee now. Now we want you to get out on the road and start driving. And they got a controller to drive. And the guy kind of laughs and he goes, well, I can't. And the clinician goes, why not? And he goes, because the switch for turning on a Humvee is in the off position. 
And that was because the photograph, of course, was taken in a Humvee parked in the, you know, in the off position, and our modelers didn't know any better. I mean, it wasn't labeled on, off, or anything, you know. And uh, that level of detail was detected. The trouble is that the software that Skip is using is many years behind games like Call of Duty or Battlefield. It looks primitive in comparison. But it turns out, that's okay. Even beneficial. Because simpler graphics can actually allow for the client to map their own memories on top of the simulation more effectively. That observation first came up back in the late 90s when uh, Barbara Rothbaum and Gerald Pear and Larry Hodges uh, built a virtual Vietnam scenario. And, you know, back in the 90s, graphics were, you know, uh, fairly primitive. I mean, you know, they weren't, they weren't that anywhere near 20 years later a level that they are today. But... Vietnam era vets would go into this like rice paddy, very primitive rice paddy scene, and here they are 20, 25 years after their trauma in 1998, 99, whatever, and they're getting emotionally activated when they're in it. But then when, the, you know, anecdotally when they would come out, you know, the researchers would say, tell me about what you saw in there. And they'd report, oh, I was in the rice paddy and uh, there was a water buffalo and uh, the Viet Cong were at the margin of the jungle and the tracer firings were coming in from the weapons and none of that was in there. And experiences like this can happen in Skip's simulations as well, partially because graphics are not the only things doing the work. Like, for example, we use a smell machine and a vibrating platform to add multi-sensory stimuli into the mix. So, you know, you're driving down a roadway and a bomb goes off, you're smelling the smell of gunpowder, cordite, or diesel fuel, or rotting garbage if you're walking through a slum area. When Tim talked about his experience with Call of Duty, it sounded a little bit like Skip's exposure therapy. It's painful for me to take a, a rifle up against a first-person shooter's shoulder and put rounds down range. Why? Because that's something I might have really done in real life. And that really is, uh, it, could, it can be and is and should be triggering. I don't think anybody should be able to, no human should be able to physiologically go through those traumas and not come out a different person and subsequently respond when you have things happening around you that are similar to when that trauma happened. But in my case, and again, I don't think it was a, a switch that flipped or I, maybe I just got old enough or matured enough or it was long enough, I don't know, but it was just like, you know what? This is really relaxing, and I want to tell more people about how relaxing it is. One of the exciting things about Skip's VR exposure therapy is that the potential extends far beyond the treatment of combat veterans. We just recently completed a small safety and feasibility trial with sexual assault victims. You know, this is very touchy stuff, so, you know, we did a small trial, and we got good results. Number one, nobody, nobody got hurt, nobody ripped off the headset and ran out the door, plus we also saw significant improvements in PTSD symptoms and also in heart rate uh, reactivity. You know, we're now conceptualizing how we might build something uh, for the Las Vegas shootings uh, because you've got 22,000 people directly exposed to probably the most horrific experience somebody can have in the civilian environment. And we want to be ready and armed for it. So, you know, psychology has been around for what, 100, 150 years studying human behavior and interaction in the real world. Now we got to start putting our nose to the grindstone to study human behavior and interaction in the virtual world in order to be able to see what can we do in there 
what what's happening to people when they experience these environments generally but how can we marshal that the, those impacts in ways that have a, a pro-social effect or a positive clinical outcome for people um, that have undergone trauma Level 2. Virtual Soldiers The sounds that you're hearing now are me, dying, over and over. But they're also the sounds of me being recruited. The game that I'm playing is called America's Army. It's an online cooperative multiplayer, first-person shooter, war game. There are different modes of gameplay, but they're all some version of you and your teammates take out the opposition. In that way, it's like a lot of other multiplayer war shooters, Call of Duty, Battlefield, Counter-Strike, but there are a couple of ways in which America's Army is different. One, it's free to download. If you have a computer or a console, you can play it for nothing at all, which makes it markedly more accessible than other war games, which typically sell for around $60. And two, it is produced by the actual United States Army. Yeah, my name's Robertson Allen. I go by Rob. Rob is an independent scholar who spent years with the Army Game Studio, the group that develops America's Army, studying not only the game itself, but its use as a recruitment tool. When I asked Rob to describe America's Army for people who don't know it, he laughed. <laughs> yeah, there's so many moving parts. He's right, and we'll try to get to all of them in this episode, but if you're to tell the origin story of America's Army, it goes a little something like this. Originally, back in the late 90s, uh, there was uh, a colonel, his name is uh, Casey Wardinsky, and he was the head of this office at West Point. It's called the Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis. Uh, he is an economist by training, um, behavioral economist, um, and he and part of the mission of, of of what he was doing was to think of ways to you know improve uh, manpower recruitment and uh, different kinds of human manpower issues in the army. And he saw that uh, his his son was playing uh, lots of video games, um, and he really recognized early on the power of uh, video games, especially with uh, this demographic of uh, early teenage boys. And in the winter of 1998, Wardinsky was at a cocktail party in Calabasas, California. At the party, Wardinsky met a man who distributed media across the country on CDs. The man told Wardinsky that it cost less than a dollar to ship the disc anywhere in the country. Wardinsky was an economist, and it was his job to know exactly how much money the army was spending trying to get enlistment information into American homes. Shipping a CD for pennies? was much more cost-effective than what the Army was already doing. So many months and many meetings later, Wardinsky and his team were on their way to creating what would be America's Army, a free-to-play online shooter that, unlike Call of Duty or Battlefield, upheld the core tenets of the United States Army. Uh, there was a very concerted effort that they wanted America's Army to be not this kind of run-and-gun, Rambo-style, shoot-em-up game, where it's all the focus on the individual and kind of the prowess of the individual gamer. Uh, they wanted it to be 
and and this is you know true to the military they wanted it to be a team focused game so when you're playing it what might feel like slight differences in gameplay are actually meticulously crafted methods of instilling army values in the player for example before you're permitted to play online you must complete a rigorous basic training program that mimics actual army training typically in call of duty shooting your own teammate is impossible if you want friendly fire to do actual damage in Call of Duty, you have to manually turn that setting on. In America's Army, not only will friendly fire potentially kill your teammate, it can also land you in a virtual prison and take away honor points that can help you progress through the game. It's reaching out beyond these traditional institutional boundaries and disciplining players to the, the military's way of doing things. Um, and some people might be really appealed to that, uh, others might necessarily not. And that's something I'd never thought of. If you don't like the game, that's useful for the Army too. When I first heard about America's Army and its use as a recruitment tool, I figured that the game's chief goal would be to make the Army look appealing to young people. But that is only a part of it. Mordinsky says, quote, We don't need that many kids, really. And the kids that we do need? We want them to be a good fit, because they're volunteers. If they're not a good fit, they're going to cost a fortune, and they're going to be unhappy, end quote. And Wardinsky doesn't want that. What America's Army can do, in part, is weed out people who aren't right for the job. But Rob sees something else happening, too. Traditionally, in the U.S. culture, there's been this kind of separation between the world of the citizen or civilian in the, the world of the soldier, um, and there hasn't been much interaction between that. And I see um, that kind of changing a lot. I, I think there's still this binary division out there in people's heads, uh, but like a lot of these other kinds of binaries, um, like virtual and the real or um, war and game um, kind of binary, they're kind of um, eroding in, in reality. Um, and so the implications of that is that we as uh, civilians are, are becoming more, I like to say, interpolated um, or more involved in what it means to be like a soldier. And so there's this reserve labor pool, if you will, of uh, civilians out there who are almost like a reserve army. So these people, which is to say we, are what Rob calls virtual soldiers. And this idea contributes to what has been called the military entertainment complex. I'm not the first to use that term. Um, I think it was first used maybe you know, 20 years ago almost, um, and probably even more longer ago than that. But it builds on the idea of the military uh, industrial complex, uh, which is really made popularized by Eisenhower's farewell speech. And so he uh, kind of warned people, beware of the military industrial complex. Right, because uh, he saw in his presidency that there is this growing power of not uh, just the military itself, but all these different kinds of um, institutions that were growing in power. People have taken that term and applied it to the entertainment sphere to look at the way that uh, entertainment in itself has become uh, co-opted as as part of what the military does. So it's not just video games. There's all sorts of different other kinds of uh, military entertainment out there, um, you know, sports, NASCAR, uh, air shows, uh, all sorts of things like that. 
And this campaign, Rob says, has been incredibly effective. In his book, America's Digital Army, Rob writes, quote, this illusory separation between the world of the civilian and that of the soldier has become increasingly vague, end quote. He reminds us that 90% of casualties during war are non-combatant civilians. Quote, the tacit boundaries between war and not war do not take into account the ways in which other forms of violence increase during times of war, especially among families of enlisted soldiers, which experience higher rates of domestic violence. The extent to which war affects civilians and soldiers alike in violent and traumatic ways cannot be understated and is a legacy of war that undermines the easy binary between soldier and civilian, as well as that between battlefront and home front, end quote. Rob sees a blurring of those lines, and games like America's Army are contributing to it. While remaining admirably objective throughout the book, Rob still writes that, quote, America's Army actively and effectively perpetuates this ambiguity between soldier and civilian, end quote. If this is starting to sound a bit like Ender's Game, you wouldn't be off the mark. If it's been a while since the 8th grade, Ender's Game is a 1985 science fiction novel by Orson Scott Card, which tells the story of a boy named Ender, who, at the age of Mordinsky's Young Gamers, becomes a student at the National Military Academy. There, he eventually discovers that the training simulators he's been using are not simulators at all, but the actual controls for drone ships that have all along been defending the planet from an alien invasion. It turns out, this story isn't just a prescient portrait of the Army's use of game technology, it was actually an inspiration for it. Michael Macedonia, a chief scientist in the Army, worked in parallel with Wardinsky to move the military toward the use of game technology after 9-11. He credits Card's novel as a major influence. In a book called Warplay, Corey Mead describes Macedonia's thinking. Quote, Macedonia is also a devotee of UC San Diego neurologist V.S. Ramachandran's theory that human beings consist, in essence, of their memories. What military training tries to do, Macedonia explains, is create those memories in soldiers before they ever hit the battlefield, end quote. Video games are an effective, economical, and fast way to do this. But America's Army goes far beyond the free-to-play online multiplayer shooter that I was doing so poorly at earlier on. Yeah, so the Virtual Army experience, it's called the VAE in short, was developed by uh, America's Army developers as this kind of immersive, interactive experience that would kind of go on tour, uh, essentially, to different kinds of events like uh, state fairs, air shows. also went to the Indianapolis Air Show. They went to Six Flags, I think, and all different kinds of um, kind of public events to act as an advertisement, uh, but also kind of educational experience for, for the Army. Um, so people would line up for hours to go through this. It was at the Indiana State Fair, it was one of the most popular things. And it was basically about 20 minutes long. You'd have Army recruiters from the local area. They would take your name and register you into a system. It would then be shared with local Army recruiters. 
Uh, they'd ask you a few questions like, are you interested in learning more about the U.S. Army? And then they would take you on a tour. There's either former or current soldiers uh, would guide groups of about 20 people through the VAE. And then kind of the highlight of it was that uh, you would go into this uh, interactive experience where you're surrounded by this uh, 180-degree screens. You go inside a mock mock-up Humvee or helicopter, and they take you through this mission where you're um, shooting guns at, they call them terrorist enemies. Uh, It's not so much like a video game. You're really on rails and shooting at these even more, obviously, uh, Middle Eastern enemies. And then at the very end, they take you out, and a lot of times you would meet a figure that they call the real hero. Uh, which is an America's Army uh, soldier, uh, actual enlisted soldier, um, who was created by the America's Army as a figure whose story could be used for uh, recruitment purposes. So there's a lot of stuff going on even at the VAE. But the VAE wasn't it. The Army Experience Center is essentially uh, the VAE put into shopping mall. So this was really an experimental project that the military had in uh, what they call the soft sell. There's this history of army recruiters really approaching high schoolers, especially, and giving them the hard sell, right? They wanted to get away from that and see, you know, if there was more of a passive, um, more fun kind of approach, um, how successful could that be? And as you might expect, there was a lot of backlash. There were consistent protests of both the Virtual Army Experience and the Army Experience Center, this guy who's in my book, John Grant, really articulated it well, that they understand that there is an effort to push the Army and the military as as kind of like a brand, right? There is a branding that has to take place if you're going to have an all-volunteer Army. That's, That's uncomfortable with a lot of people. But Rob, who is a gamer himself, was kind of torn about the language that some of these protests used. Even among the the liberal protesters, they're mostly liberal-oriented protesters against the game, returning to the conservative notion that games are always corrupting and look here's a perfect example. They're, they're corrupting our kids. So the protesters seem to have a problem with the army approaching younger and younger kids. But Bordinsky's response to this was, who do you want us to target? The elderly? But it's not just the VAE and the AEC that have received backlash. It's also America's army itself. The word that comes up most, maybe you've thought it already, is propaganda. But the army, surprisingly, doesn't seem to mind. They consistently try to avoid that word, especially in their own self-descriptions of the game. But I don't think that there was any kind of negative associations to the idea that America's army might be considered propaganda. Rob writes, quote, Wardinsky himself unapologetically considers the game as part of a continuum stemming from the Uncle Sam, I want you ads of World War I and propaganda movies of World War II, end quote. But the developers, who were mostly civilians, were sometimes on the fence. Another game developer who was actually a former Marine himself, there are only two two former soldiers on a team of like 35 or so. He said that really he, he understood that there were there was a certain dishonesty that was taking place in the game, but with a lot of the advertising for 
the military out there, like he brought this example of um, some Marine that was climbing a cliff without any safety gear and made it to the top. And that's not really what you do in, in the Marines so much. Um, and there's all these different kinds of other different kinds of advertisement for the military that he felt were a lot less honest. The Army is aware that they need to be delicate with all of this. And you can see their strategy evolving in each version of the game. America's Army is in its fourth installment now, and it's come a long way. For example, in the first version of the game, which came out in 2002, just after the War on Terror began, and only months before the Iraq War would begin, it was difficult to ignore the overt political message behind the design of the game's enemies. There still was a concerted effort by the Army to not have a particular kind of cultural or national enemy represented. I don't think that was truly achieved because in early versions of the game it looks like a Middle Eastern enemy. But in newer versions of the game, that changed. There was an effort in about 2008 or so uh, when uh, developers were making uh, America's Army 3 to create a whole new uh, fictionalized kind of culture and a fictionalized enemy. They created this country or a set of countries, um, the, the main country was called Cervania, and this peaceful uh, island nation was invaded by the Cervanian enemy. And of course, the United States was called upon to uh, go and defend uh, democracy and peace. So that's really the, the vague excuse for military action there. The developers even created a fictional language to go along with its fictional enemies. There still was this end result of the enemy in the game, increasingly to me, looks and sounds Russian. I I asked Rob if he thought that the switch might be motivated by race. Would liberal critics more readily accept a vaguely Russian white enemy than a vaguely Muslim Middle Eastern one? It never, it never came up in conversation I had with uh, any of the developers, but I think that that was a clear reason why uh, that move was made. But there's another important way in which America's army has carefully crafted the player's experience of the game's enemies. America's Army uses what developers call the swapping paradigm, meaning that the player will always see themselves and their teammates as the United States Army, and the opposing team as the enemy. In other words, in America's Army, you cannot play as the enemy. It is physically impossible. Rob writes that America's Army is, quote, part of a hyper-realistic narrative of what the Army desires itself to be, a narrative that produces rather than reflects realities, end quote. There's always this recursion to the U.S.'s hero sort of narrative, um, and a lot of them are really kind of excuses for um, America's Army to portray the U.S. and the U.S. military as hero. The, the big thrust of what I was um, trying to get across in the book is that there is this... Um, process of militarization that's happening, um, where this kind of logics of the military are becoming more normalized and more commonsensical, all right? And so that's playing out through military entertainment, but it's also something that's coming across through you know, police militarization, militarized masculinity, the idea of uh, U.S. citizenship itself being militarized. And so, you know, games are part of that process, and I think it's really important that game players and game developers and game critics really take some time to consider that.
Nowadays, America's Army is much more than an online shooter, or even the VAE. The game is actually being used as a training program by the US Army to train soldiers on various systems or equipment. It's also being used in PTSD treatment. America's Army has been far more successful than Wardinsky could have imagined. In 2009, 10 years after the cocktail party in California where Wardinsky first conceived it, America's Army set the Guinness World Records for most downloaded war game and largest virtual army. And it did all of this while spending only one third of 1% of the army's marketing budget. It is arguably the most successful recruiting campaign in United States Army history. A couple of years after Rob finished his research, the Army released the newest version of the game, America's Army Proving Grounds. I asked Rob if he had any plans to play it. Not really. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of over. <laughs> He's over it. But if part of America's Army's mission is to weed out people who aren't fit for the Army, then for Rob and me, it did its job. Really makes me realize that if I have taken anything away from Call of Duty or America's Army, it's that I really should not be in the <laughs> yeah, Army. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's one of my takeaways as well. Level three. Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Fascism has taken over. Nazis march openly down American streets. Anyone who protests is met with imprisonment, violence, or death. When game developers at Bethesda and Machine Games announced the setting for Wolfenstein II The New Colossus in June of last year, they couldn't have had any idea that by the time the game was released, their fictional 1961 would sound an awful lot like real 2017. Like a vision out of Dante's Inferno. Monsters did this. Not monsters. Men. America? I guess they don't have the fighting spirit no more. They just do whatever the fucking Fuhrer tells them to do. In the lead-up to the game's release in October 2017, Bethesda didn't shy away from Wolfenstein's anti-Nazi politics. They doubled down. They released a number of social media campaigns that directly targeted American white supremacists. Under the hashtag, NoMoreNazis, they released gameplay footage of a Nazi getting punched in the face, with text that read, If you're a Nazi, GTFO. As in, get the fuck out. They began the hashtag, MakeAmericaNaziFreeAgain, and released images with the text, there is only one side, and not my America. Bethesda actually got pushback for their campaign. I won't read any of it here because most of it is racist and all of it is ridiculous, but the gist of it seemed to indicate that hating Nazis has somehow become a contentious political position. The thing is, if we consider hating Nazis political, Wolfenstein has always been political. And Wolfenstein has been around for a long time. Recent versions of the game were inspired by Wolfenstein 3D, which came out in 1992. 
In fact, if you've played any first-person shooter at all recently, you can thank Wolfenstein 3D. It was the first modern FPS created by id Software, the same company that would create Doom a year later. The player controlled William B.J. Blaskowitz, an American soldier trying to escape from a Nazi prison by brutally slaughtering any Nazi in his path. But Wolfenstein didn't start there, either. In 1981, Muse Software, a small, independent development company from Baltimore, released a quiet but revolutionary stealth game about escaping from a Nazi prison. The game was called Castle Wolfenstein. What in 2000 sounds like this... In 1981, sounded like this. What Wolfenstein 3D did for first-person shooters, Castle Wolfenstein did for nearly every game in the world, because Castle Wolfenstein was the first game ever to feature a human voice. It sounds primitive, but the shouts of the Nazi soldiers are actually the voice of the game's creator, a man named Silas Warner, who developed the voice synthesis technology used in the game. Warner's influence on the gaming industry is absolutely massive, but in 1981, Warner had no idea that the game he was programming, often in his underwear apparently, would still be inspiring gamers 36 years later. He had no idea, of course, that it would still be relevant. With the war over Wolfenstein II, the new Colossus, raging on, I wanted to take a look at the man who started it all. A truly unique and surprising man, whose genius and passion we're still feeling today. Warner passed away in 2004, but I spoke to someone else instead. The person who might have known Silas best. I'm Carrie Ann Owen. I am... A PhD level scholar in. Carrie Ann was Silas's wife. I asked Carrie Ann about the first time she met Silas. See, Silas was six foot nine and 300 pounds, certainly an uncommon sight. But Carrie Ann doesn't even mention that. We met in San Francisco at a wonderful American style restaurant, which friends of mine frequented. And we fell in love on the first date. We had both faced immensely difficult obstacles at young ages. And we had managed to survive and succeed in facing those obstacles. And we were very passionate from a young age about science, history, and literature. It's difficult to know where to start when talking about Silas because his life was so full and he was interested in so many things, not just game design. Silas was a wonderful writer in prose fiction and science fiction. He also composed church music. He was very involved in a parish, a Lutheran parish, in the Baltimore area, an inclusive parish. He was also involved in theater. He played football. He attended an agricultural school. He was an avid reader, a history buff. But maybe it's best to start at the beginning. For a man who Carrie Ann describes as a gentle giant, 
Silas's life didn't start out that way. Unfortunately, Silas's father was extraordinarily violent. What happened is that Silas's father practically killed Silas's mother, Anne, and the man who would become my husband on several occasions. And the last occasion was when Anne Warner, Silas's mom, was fleeing Chicago with Silas to go to Bloomington, Indiana, where her wonderful sister had arranged housing for them. And Silas's father cut the brake linings of their car. There was a lot of darkness in Silas's childhood. But once Silas and his mother escaped to Indiana, there was a lot of light, too. By all accounts, Silas was brilliant. Carrie Ann says that he had an IQ of 185. Also, his mom isn't around to confirm it, but apparently, Silas got a perfect score on his SATs. But Silas wasn't just a genius. He was also a really hard worker. My husband worked his way through Indiana University, and he essentially ran the school's computer systems. And he was a broadcast journalist for the campus radio station. And actually, his years at the university were very, very happy. Because there weren't degrees in computer science at the time, Silas studied physics. But his true love was always programming. Silas's mind, being as quick and as focused and as informed, Silas was in a position to make very good use of technology. I should say now that when I spoke with Carrie Ann about Silas, I had no intention of talking politics. As far as I knew, Castle Wolfenstein's World War II setting was merely a convenient backdrop for the gameplay mechanics that Silas wanted to explore. But it turns out, when talking about Silas, it's hard to avoid talking about politics. Silas was very involved as, as a young scientist, as a young man in that inclusive parish, and you might remember that Maryland was essentially a southern state, and that integration came slowly. Maryland was not New York, and it was, it was quite a revolutionary thing to have a church welcoming all races, all colors, all nationalities. Now, one thing, thing you may never have heard about Silas is that one day he and his computer science team were at a restaurant in Maryland and one of the team members was from India and had dark skin and was refused service. My husband, Silas Warner, was six foot nine or three hundred pounds and had a voice that you could hear from New York to Los Angeles and probably clear to China, Silas integrated that restaurant. And Castle Wolfenstein's World War II setting? That's not a coincidence either. Although Silas was not Jewish, he, he had a deep empathy for Jewish life and certainly for, Ameri for Jewish history, European and American. And Silas was very aware of that period in history. And Silas did not have an anti-Semitic bone in his body. But Silas's interest didn't stop with World War II. 
Having grown up during the Cold War, Silas and Carrie Ann often talked about a possible World War III. Silas and I had many talks about modern history, and we we talked about the possibility of a third world war. I was very involved in reading about it and writing about it. We had great historical awareness without the ability to do very much about it, about what was coming. And once you become aware that an unstable man can be president, which has already happened to us, not one time, but two times, the question of nuclear war is very paramount. Talking with Carrie Ann, Silas's fixation with World War II and World War III started to take shape for me. Castle Wolfenstein started to look less like a preoccupation with the past and more like a warning echoing into the future. We never imagined that American Nazis would parade on American streets in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Nazis did a marvelous job destroying Germany and almost the rest of the world, and they are no group to emulate politically or in any other way. Let's remember there were Americans who put their lives on the line in Charlottesville to let the world know that Nazism didn't belong in America. I want to give encouragement to the current Castle Wolfenstein people, if if they're getting any angry comments, if they need any form of support, I will gladly give to them, just as my husband would give it to them. He would give, he would do everything he could to support them. Less than 10 years into their marriage, Silas was diagnosed with kidney disease. Silas was extremely brave in facing a combination of illnesses. He would sit in this dialysis clinic, one arm immobilized because of the dialysis machinery and the other arm programming his laptop. He used those hours, and the time came when his body simply was exhausted and he couldn't go on anymore. Silas's influence extends far beyond Wolfenstein II, first-person shooters, and voice integration. If one thing is clear from my research about Silas, It's that he had a profound impact on the lives of the people who knew him. When a friend who knew Silas posted online about Silas's death in 2004, the comments section lit up. 
and it's still lighting up. As recently as this year, people from all over the world are telling stories about Silas and what he meant to them. His third grade teacher, his second cousin, friends at Muse Software, all calling Silas, quote, a fantastic creative mind, a unique and enigmatic individual who is intellectually leaps and bounds beyond his peers, a kind and helpful person, a gentle, gentle man, a wonderful example of all the positive qualities people have described here, humor, intelligence, and warmth. I, I love my husband just as much as I did through all the years we were together, and in a sense, I'm happy he is not here to see how far down this country is going and how fast. But knowing my husband, he would take it with a sense of humor. This episode of Character Creator was produced by me and my enormous cat, Jimmy. I want to thank Stephen Machuga. Stackup.org is the website. Uh, head on over there, all the details for what you can do to get involved. Tim Locklear. So we do. We work with a uh, local dog trainer to help veterans get service dogs. So that one's called Boris, the service dog.com, B-O-R-I-S, the service dog.com. And then I also work with an organization called Veterans for Natural Rights. Uh, we help veterans just sort of think about things from a different perspective, and that's uh, obviously, on Facebook, it's VNR or Veterans for Natural Rights. And then on Facebook also is the local organization of veterans that get together and game and talk about stuff and go on hikes and talk about natural medicine. And that's at Glasshouse22 on Facebook. Bryant Chambers. Mostly what I focus on right now is helping other people take command of their lives so that they can live what we call the way God intends us to, kind of the good life situation. You can find Bryant's personal and professional development tips on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for Bryant Chambers. I also want to thank Skip Rizzo. If people are interested in contacting me, I'm pretty easy to find on our, uh, our website at USC or at the Institute for Creative Technologies. Not to, not to sound like a beggar with a tin cup here, but uh, we need funding to advance our work. So if anybody out there uh, you know, uh, has a collaboration that might involve um, us working with, and particularly, you know, we don't just do trauma work. You know, we do a lot of work with training with uh, folks uh, on the autism spectrum with virtual human job interview training or testing kids with attention deficit disorder using VR simulations in a virtual classroom and physical therapy applications using game-based uh, tactics to motivate people to do more engaged physical therapy after a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. So we've got a, a wide spectrum of research um, going on. Robertson Allen. Well, you can get my book on Amazon um, or also the Uni University of Nebraska Press. And Rob's book, again, is called America's Digital Army. And, of course, I want to thank Carrie Ann Owen. We are Wild Horse, that's one word, Wild Horse Therapeutic Riding Program. You can find Wild Horse at wildhorse.vpweb.com. I also want to thank Sam Perry, Jody Perkins, Beth Nugent, Mary Cross, and Ron Menzel. 
Music for the show is by Names for Sounds. You can find more music at namesforsounds.com. If you like the show, please consider donating. Visit patreon.com slash character creator podcast to contribute and get some cool rewards in return. If you don't have money, that's okay. I get it. Believe me. But please consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Doing that can go a long way toward getting the show heard by more and more people. New episodes of Character Creator go up on the first Monday of each month. But there's lots of bonus content, side quests, and let's plays as well. Keep up with everything that's going on on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on our website, charactercreatorpodcast.com, where you can find links for all of the references made in today's episode. Once again, that's charactercreatorpodcast.com.